Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Courtney, 2021 has come in with quite an uproar. The year was hardly a week old when we witnessed domestic terrorists actually breach and overrun the Capitol building of the United States of America. And Carol, I was so happy to leave some of that 2020 craziness behind us, but it seems like 2021 has its whole own set of challenges. Yes, yes, it does. Um, Six days in and absolute insanity. So, um, First, I want to start with a little history quiz for you. What do the years 1932, 1963, Well, those are very good guesses. Now, with the exception of 1932, they are the years when some of the most historic peaceful protests and marches were held in our nation's capital of Washington, D.C. Now, I'm going to hang on to 1932 and tell you about that a little later. Well, I can't wait to hear about what went down in 1932. (laughs) Well, hang on, you're going to hear. Um, But let me start with 1963. That was the historic March on Washington for jobs and freedom, where 250,000 people heard Martin Luther King's iconic I Have a Dream speech. Now, 260,000 marched in 1981 in the Solidarity Day March to protest Ronald Reagan's firing of 12,000 air traffic controllers. In 1987, the Lesbian and Gay Rights Nation March attracted 200,000 demonstrators. Then, Black African-American men from around the country gathered in 1995 for the Million Man March, which was estimated between 400,000 and 1.1 million folks. Now, rallying for women's reproductive rights was in in 2004, and that's when about 600,000 to 1.1 million people joined the March for Women's Lives. And in protest to Donald Trump's election in 2017, 500,000 assembled for the Women's March. Now, Courtney, for the most part, these were peaceful demonstrations in which American citizens were able to express their concerns without threat of violence from law enforcement or the military. So Washington, D.C. is no stranger to marches and protests, but what happened on January 6th was definitely not peaceful. No, it was not at all, my dear niece. These were not protesters. These were rioters 
they descended on and breached the Capitol building, and they had nothing in common with the protesters I described earlier. None of those marches and the thousands of protests and marches held in D.C. throughout history reached the level of anarchy we saw on January 6th. In fact, the last and only time the Capitol building was breached was in 1812, when it was burned by British soldiers. Now, most are characterizing that chaos as, at best, domestic terrorism, and at worst, an attempt to overthrow the government. That's also known as a coup. And speaking of coups, I believe you have a story of when a coup actually did happen on American soil and the rightfully sitting, sitting government was overthrown. Yes, yes, I do. And this story, when I heard about it, shocked me. And I hope it shocks our readers into digging a little bit uh, deeper into this story. Now, despite what we saw last week, the storming of the Capitol in Washington, D.C., as horrific as that was, the idea of a successful government overthrow is still something Americans do not really believe could happen on American soil. No matter how organized or passionate a group may be, there's no way any American government on any level would allow an armed group of citizens to tear it down and reshape it the way they saw fit. But I hate to burst our listeners bubbles, uh, but it's happened. And like I always say, history is written by the victorious. The story of the I'm about to tell you is a violent coup, but it has been turned into a heroic tale of how good patriots tore down a corrupt system and saved their city. Talk about turning the tables. Well, oh. let's hear. Well, the city was Wilmington, North Carolina. The date was November 10th, 1898 and the self-proclaimed heroes were true villains. Now, before we start, I just wanna remind our listeners that during this time in history, the Republican Party was the party of African-American suffrage and empowerment, and the Democratic Party was the party of white supremacy, Southern planters, and the Confederacy. So make sure you plant that seed in your mind. Uh, those are the parties we're looking at. African-Americans are Republican, and are the white supremacists are the Democrats. Good, good information to remember. Now, a few facts about Wilmington, North Carolina before this coup takes place. Wilmington was the largest city in North Carolina at the time, and it boasted a majority African-American population at 56%. There were three black aldermen, there were black policemen, several local, state, and even national government leaders came out of Wilmington. And it was dubbed the freest town for a Negro in the country. Now that was 1898, right? That was around the time of 18, between 1895 and 1898. Okay. But by the spring of 1898, uh, the Democrats had had it up to here. The Republican Party, along with the party called the Populist Party, 
which consisted of poor whites who had grown tired of the white supremacy goals and rhetoric of the Democrats because they were suffering through a recession, joined the black Republicans to, to form the fusion party. And that fusion party managed to take over both state and local government. And by that time, when that government flip took place, the Democrats were enraged and they vowed to win the elections of 1898, the midterms by the ballot or the bullet or by both. And this was not a fact that any Democrat tried to hide. So even without social media, they put it out there. They put it out there. Now, one of our early players in this coup d'etat is a man by the name of Josephus Daniel. Now, Josephus Daniel wasn't even in Wilmington, nor did he live there, but he was the founder of the News and Observer newspaper out of Raleigh, North Carolina, which is the capital. Now, this paper was pro-Democrat and pro-white supremacy, and Daniels did not hide his feelings or miss a chance to write about what he called Negro rule or Negro domination in the South. He viewed that as the largest threat to white supremacy in North Carolina, especially in the Northeastern uh, section of the state, which was called the Black Belt, where 18 counties had a majority of African-American voters. Well, you know, this is kind of personal for me. I lived in Raleigh, and I certainly remember the name of that newspaper. So, hmm, let's hear some more. Well, Mr. Daniels, along with several other high-profile Democrats, created a plan, and I'm not joking, called the White Supremacy Plan. This plan had two goals. Goal number one, to prove that Blacks were incompetent and incapable of voting. Well, maybe this is a three goal, a three goal process to prove that blacks were incompetent and incapable of voting. The ones in government were totally inept and corrupt. And finally, that black men were sexually insatiable and would not only steal the government, they were coming for white men's jobs and coming for white women, too. I'm always amazed at how sex always gets tied up in this. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Well, sex sells newspapers, and in this case, that's what Daniels used. The News and Observer ran salacious political cartoons showing Black men as monsters and vampires who needed to be stopped and destroyed before they took over everything white Southerners held dear, especially white womanhood. So if, even if you couldn't read, you could see these terrifying uh, cartoons. Now, it wasn't just the media who played a role in this white supremacy plan. Everyone's favorite armed Democrats are back from the Rutherford B. Hayes election. It's the <laughs> paramilitary arm of the Democrats, the red shirts. Oh, they're back. They're back. Oh, they are back and they are here with all the greatest hits. That's voter suppression, voter intimidation, out and out violence. Now, not to shock anyone, but the red shirts were actually the KKK. But as registered Democrats, they could just they were using our own special form of campaigning to make sure that 
Blacks don't vote. (laughs) Today, we would call that rebranded. Yes, they have rebranded their image from the red shirts to the Klan and back again. In one case, the red shirts removed Black people from a polling location, stuffed a ballot box so full with a Democratic candidate that it was more people that then lived in that district. (laughs) Okay, that's pretty good. That's better than voting the dead. (laughs) That is better than voting that. Why not? More people live here than, you know, all these uh, than actually are there. But don't think that the African-American population did not stand up for itself. Several senators, U.S. senators and, and state senators did speak out against this plan. Now, the boots on the ground was a little bit harder because even though there was a Black majority in Wilmington, it was still hard for African-American men to obtain and be sold firearms. So they went about it a different way. And one person who made sure his voice was heard was Alexander Manley. Now, Mr. Manley owned the Daily Recorder, which was the prominent Black newspaper in Wilmington at the time. And he wrote a scathing rebuttal, which challenged a speech given by a woman by the name of Rebecca Felton. Now, she lived all the way in Georgia, but her words were echoing through the South, just reminding people to protect white womanhood. And she was quoted as saying, if it would take the lynching of a thousand Black men a day to protect white women, I say lynch. Wow. She had it out for Black men. Yes, she did. Now, Mr. Manley was not going to take that slander lying down. He challenged the notion of this pure white womanhood and these attacks by Black men by saying that most of the men who were charged with rape were actually in consensual relationships with these white women, their accusers. And they're the ones that ended up being lynched. All the while, Black women were constantly under threat of being sexually assaulted by white men with no uh, form of justice in sight. He was quoted as saying, don't ever think that your women will remain pure while you debauch ours. If you sow the seed, the harvest will come in due time. My goodness, the chickens coming home to roost. And Mr. Manley was a mixed race gentleman who was raised by his slave mother, but his father was his mother's owner. So he knew all about these non-consensual relationships. Mm. Now, sadly, no matter how eloquent Mr. Manley's words were and his personal attachment to that type of situation, they were used to, they were twisted and used by white newspapers as proof that Black men were out of place and their sole purpose was to destroy the white race by race mixing and that white men should start stockpiling weapons. Now, many men called for the immediate lynching of Mr. Manley, but in very uncharacteristic fashion, the local Democrats in red shirts said, no, 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 stand down, because they had an even better fate planned for Mr. Manley and the African-American citizens uh, of Wilmington come November. Mm, This sounds ominous. Very much so. Now, the white supremacy plan worked throughout the summer using media, violence, and intimidation with one goal, making sure that the Democrats won in November one way or another. Now, on the night of November 9th, 1898, the night before the election, 
Colonel Alfred Moore Waddell, a former congressman and now leader of the Red Shirts, said, and I quote, the crisis is upon us. You must do your duty. This city, this country and state must be rid of Negro domination now and forever. Go to the polls tomorrow. And if you find a Negro out voting, tell him to leave. And if he refuses, kill him. Shoot him down in his tracks. My goodness. Talk about, ooh, I, I don't even know what to say to that. Anyway, go ahead. That man has an elementary school named after him. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. So as the sun sets on the 9th and rises on November 10th, 1898, the African-American citizens of Wilmington have no idea what's heading their way. Come back from our break, I'll tell you and our listeners the rest of the story. <laughs> I don't know what to think, Courtney, other than to say, let's take a break. Then we will indeed, like you say, hear the rest of that story. Hey, we are back. But before you finish this crazy story about Wilmington, North Carolina, I want to remind our listeners, if they want to learn more about systemic racism, like the situation we're about to describe in today's episode, go to our website, www.whyaretheysoangry.com for more information and take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. So, Courtney, we had said that we're going to be talking about and hearing about a coup on American soil. So take it away. Well, like one of my favorite movies, buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Mm. So when we left off, the red shirts had been given their marching orders by Colonel Waddell. And as you can tell, this was never meant to be peaceful. There was no peaceful protest, nothing. This was a violent insurrection from the start. Now, the mob not only included the red shirts, they had been joined by the state's light infantry militia and the Naval Reserve. So in that time, their National Guard has joined up with the red shirts, a.k.a. the Klan, mm. as well as regular citizens who had been outraged and set into a, a terrified frenzy about Negro rule. Mm. They mm. arrived in the morning by streetcar and train. Now, their first target was Alexander Manley and his newspaper. They had plans to lynch him and burn his building to the ground. Now, luckily, Alexander had been tipped off and escaped days before, never to return. But that did not stop the mob from taking out their frustration on this newspaper. They burned the building and its contents to the ground and then turn their eyes on the seven blocks surrounding it. My goodness. So it wasn't enough just to burn down the newspaper building, but they had other plans. Oh, they had other plans. The mob sought out Republican lawmakers, both Black and white, forcing them to resign at gunpoint. Black citizens who had not been shot were scared and ran for their lives into the cold swamps and into a local Black cemetery, praying they would not be found by the mob. Now, in a pamphlet that took an eyewitness account um, from Reverend J. Allen Kirk, uh, the pamphlet was called A Statement of Facts Concerning the Bloody Riot in Wilmington. 
he was quoted as saying this, and I'm going to read the whole quote because this is something that our listeners can visualize. It was a great sight to see them marching from death and colored men, colored women, colored children, colored enterprise and colored people all exposed to death. The firing began. And it seemed like a mighty battle in wartime. The shrieks and the screams of children and mothers and wives were heard such to cause the blood of even the most inhumane, inhumane person to creep. Thousands rushed into the swamps and lay upon the earth to freeze and starve. The woods were filled with colored people and the streets were dotted with their dead bodies. Oh, Courtney, uh, I can't say I'm happy you read that, but it was critical to hear those words, firsthand account of this horrific riot and overthrow of government. Go ahead. Now, remember Colonel Waddell, Mr. Redshirt? Yes, yes. Well, he proclaimed a white declaration of independence. And wait, wait, a- wait, wait. You said a white Declaration of Independence. Yes, a white Declaration of Independence was printed in the next day's newspaper, and he just installed himself as mayor. Okay, so, but Wilmington had a mayor. Oh, yes, they did, but he was given a choice. Either resign or we shoot you. So he chose, the, you know, to live. So he ran. Now, this, all this was happening while Black residents were still scared to come out of hiding. Now, what was happening, what actually happened and what we all have learned is this was a violent coup d'etat. But by the time those African-Americans emerged from the swamp, the story had changed and it will be taught as a lie for the next several decades. What was a coup was now a race riot. And for decades, the villains of this story were touted as state heroes that did what had to be done to stop corruption and keep North Carolina state safe when all it truly did was bring in an era of overt and covert voter suppression tactics and the disenfranchisement of the African-American community in North Carolina. So they flipped the switch and the... the So instead of the the white population stockpiling guns, it was the black population who couldn't be sold guns, by the way, but mysteriously, they had a stockpile and they ran into the streets and these brave Democrats came out and said, not our town. And they drove the evil black citizens of Wilmington back and saved the town. And, and wiped out the government, basically. And wiped out the government. So the government no longer existed. And, you know, you, I've watched several documentaries. Uh, Vox's YouTube channel has a wonderful documentary on this where it talks about people would ask about what happened in 1898 and librarians wouldn't talk about it. The school books, the textbooks touted these men as heroes. That all began to change, though, around 1998, which was the 100th anniversary of the coup. Descendants of the Black residents of Wilmington who had died or fled for their lives or fled and never returned 
wanted the truth to come out. This was not some race riot or, or people coming in to save the day like Superman. This was an overthrow of government on American soil. Now they were often offered help, but that help normally came with strings attached. Now let's jump back into our modern day. And now we know that most African-Americans, not all, but most African-Americans are now Democrats and conservatives are viewed as Republicans. So in 2007, there was a first term state general assembly representative, Tom Tillis. Uh, he was presented with a resolution for the state to apologize for the massacre but he blocked it. The only way he would let it go through is with a, as long as it was a nonpartisan resolution with a caveat that included an amendment that would acknowledge that white Republicans did help the black citizens to oppose this overthrow of government. Okay, so that was to give the current Republicans who, back then were actually the Democrats, mm -hmm. give them, make them look like the good guys, that they were okay. Exactly. And nobody really wanted to address the lie that had been told for over a hundred years. Mm. There are several investigative tribunals and several things going on in government to bring this to life, um, to light so people know more. And if our readers want to know more, you sent me on a rabbit hole with just uh, the articles from The Guardian, but I dug a little deeper and David uh, Zucchino's book is where I got a lot of the quotes and names from. His book is titled Wilmington's Lie, the murderous coup of 1898 and the rise of white supremacy. I highly recommend that as well as, like I said, going to Vox's YouTube channel and it will send you on a, a historical rabbit hole that you won't believe. So the idea of a coup not happening on American soil, it happened. Mm, my goodness, my goodness, my goodness. Well, I thank you for that information about the book. And I want our listeners to know that in our show notes, when you go to our website, you can look in our show notes and you will find the reference to that book, as well as all of the other articles and videos that we use to uh, build this episode. And Courtney, I'm, I'm still amazed. I don't know why I am, but I am amazed at how willing uh, educators and leaders and others who know better are willing to continue perpetrating lies such as this about Wilmington to, or, or to perpetrate covering up the truth. Let me put it that way. In, in my mind, that's as good as telling a lie. But to cover up the truth that a sitting government, a mayor, the uh, representatives of, of the different areas of that town of Wilmington, uh, that were a mix. They were mixed, right? It was black there and white. There was whites. a mixed government between the populace and the black Republicans. They were a thriving community. And a lot of historians say that Wilmington was a picture of what could have been if Reconstruction was allowed to thrive. Black business, black middle, uh, middle class, black wealth, blacks in government. It could have, it was a picture perfect snapshot of what could be if African Americans were just allowed to mind their business and thrive. And something that may trip you and our readers out the sitting president, President McKinley, 
was warned by black senators and rep uh, representatives in the state in Washington DC that this was going to happen. He was warned by black ministers as well and did nothing. My goodness, my goodness. Well, it seems that history has been repeating itself and that we see today and even in the 20th century situations in which um, the government has either helped, aided and abetted those who have been interested in uh, overthrowing governments. And we see that in the Wilmington story that you told us because the Navy, uh, the <laughs> National Guard, uh, others uh, who were in positions of power actually helped that coup to overthrow an integrated government, you know, Black and white people who were governing successfully together, they were ousted, ousted. And a man who was not elected just set himself up as the mayor of the town. I, just, I'm astounded. He just said, I, I go here now and he's the mayor. But Aunt Carol, I haven't forgotten that you were supposed to tell me a story about 1932 and mm -hmm. how it relates to protests and coups and systemic racism. Well, I'm glad you have a great memory, my dear niece. We've been hearing a lot about the how the pro-Trump rioters were treated differently than the people who marched in Washington to protest police brutality after George Floyd's murder. Yes, even President-elect Biden pointed out that had those protesters breached the Capitol building, they would not have been treated as kindly. So even Joe Biden recognizes the difference in how Black demonstrators and those protesting against systemic racism were treated completely different than those uninvited guests, aka rioters, that showed up at the Capitol on January 6th. Right. And some of those rioters, those uninvited guests, as you say, were literally wearing t-shirts that said uh, Civil War and the date, January 6th, 2021. So it was pretty clear what they came to do. Much like the people in Wilmington who were successful, uh, these people, these rioters on January 6, 2021, had come with a plan to overthrow the government. Now, let, let me tie this back. It all seems like I'm going down a rabbit trail, but I do want to bring this back to the 1932 Bonus Army story, because it is an illustration of how people who are peacefully demonstrating are treated differently by this government. Now, the Bonus Army was a group of about 43,000 demonstrators that included 17,000 U.S. World War I veterans, people who fought in World War on behalf of this country and Europe. Now, they were gathered in Washington, D.C. with their families and other affiliated groups, and they encamped in D.C. in mid-1932. And the reason they came is they were there to demand the early cash redemption of their what was called service certificates. Now, before the GI Bill was passed, veterans were paid a bonus to make up for the salaries they'd lost while serving in the military. That now, sounds the, fair. Well, it does. Now, the way these bonuses worked, veterans were issued certificates. 
And these could be redeemed, but in future years, you couldn't redeem them as soon as you got them. But since many of the vets had been out of work since the beginning of the Great Depression, they marched to Washington to ask to get the immediate cash payment of those certificates. Well, that sounds fair enough. It was the Depression, people were out of work and hungry. Besides, these men served our country. They served the country and risked their lives to keep us safe. Well, you th- it does sound like it would be the fair thing to do, and you would think that would be the case. But get this, on July 28, 1932, the U.S. Attorney General William D. Mitchell ordered the veterans removed from all government property. Washington police met with resistance, and they shot at the protesters, and two veterans were wounded and later died. President Herbert Hoover then ordered the U.S. Army to clear the marcher's campsite, and Army Chief of Staff General Douglas MacArthur, you'll remember that name, commanded a contingent of infantry and cavalry supported by six tanks. After the cavalry charged, the infantry with fixed bayonets and tear gas entered the camps, evicting veterans and families and burning the camp to the ground. Now, the veterans fled across the Anacostia River to their largest camp, but Hoover ordered the assault stopped. However, General MacArthur chose to ignore the president and ordered a new attack. Remember, these are American citizens, former veterans, or not former, veterans of World War I, only asking, peacefully asking for their money. But MacArthur charged across the the river And he charged because he said the bonus army was an attempt to overthrow the U.S. government. Fifty-five veterans were injured and 135 of them were arrested. Wow. So these war veterans, much like the folks today who protested against police brutality, were met with armed police and military might. They were even accused of trying to overthrow the government and all they wanted was to get paid. Exactly, my dear niece. Now, the to me, the bonus army incident is an example of how the government seems to pick and choose which protesters are deemed dangerous and which are not. In spite of the fact that neither the vets from World War I nor the protesters that we saw last year in 2020 who were protesting police brutality, Neither of these groups did anything as despicable as what we saw on January 6th. Neither of these groups had set out to overthrow the government like those folks in Wilmington, North Carolina had actually done. These protesters were disabused of their rights and met with instead overwhelming military opposition. Now, on the other hand, a group of predominantly white rioters who looted the Capitol, desecrated the building by do, uh, and going so far as even to urinate on the Capitol grounds, trash congressional offices. They were able to leave the grounds peacefully with few of them being arrested or treated to the usual riot quelling techniques that the police and military used on protesters in 2020 and back in 1932 against the bonus army. And ladies and gentlemen, that's white privilege. It is indeed. 
Well, that just breaks my heart to learn that this has happened on several, several occasions. But it seems like our episode is coming to a close, but we're back for season two. So just as a reminder, if you're looking for us, you can find us on Facebook at Why Are They So Angry, Instagram at Why Are They So Angry, Twitter at W-A-T-S-A underscore online, and at our website, whyaretheysoangry.com, where you can take the course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.